Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? Good, John. What was your Halloween costume this year? It was uh, the professor from Money Heist. Oh, Have you seen Money I, Heist? Like, I think I saw the... F- that's the, the Spanish show, yeah. I think I saw the, the first season, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Pretty yeah. good. Pretty good costume. Oh, yep. yep, and the wife was um, Tokyo. Oh, fun. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. What, what did you do for Halloween? Um, I I took an edible and I walked around the neighborhood in a in a very light costume, just like a wig and a and a and a, a leather jacket. Well, would I be able to recognize you? Yes. Okay. You certainly would have, yeah. So we wouldn't call that identity theft. No. <laughs> no, we would not. <laughs> well, I, I guess the edible explains your very mellow attitude uh, today. Mellow, a bit hungover. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect, perfect interview mode. <laughs> You you should be in a mellow mood, and we should be glad because we have a very interesting guest this week. Real Miner, the head of intelligence at Refine Intelligence. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, so what was your Halloween costume to get started here? Uh, you know, I can't tell everybody, but I guess I can tell you guys I'm Batman. Okay. That's, That's a good, good deal. Yeah, we took care of everybody last night. A little jaunt around the neighborhood with the kids and a bunch of other uh, friendly families. Well, the world's greatest detective, I guess that fits in with your real life persona uh, on, on the other side. I, I noticed on the, the website for Refine Intelligence that the, the catchphrase is catching the good guys, which is not something you normally see when you when we're looking at catching the bad guys. Uh, tell us, uh, what does that mean, catching the good guys? Right. Well, we're really trying to change the way folks think about uh, some things as as innovative companies like to do. And specifically, we're operating in the anti-money laundering space, anti-financial crime, uh, helping out those compliance departments in financial institutions and fintechs and other folks in the space. And we've noticed that when you're doing things like anti-money laundering, transaction monitoring, and looking for bad guys, which is important, we're looking for the flow of illegal money moving through the bank, but the models and technology folks are using today ends up being around 95 to 98% inaccurate or false positive or non-productive. And what we realize is that instead of searching for this 3% of individuals that are trying to fool us and do something bad, we could probably model the other 95, 98% of the data and understand what it is that causes legitimate businesses and legitimate customers to do those things in the first place, to trigger those alerts in the first place. And so once we start to clear away the legitimate activity that's triggered the alerts, becomes much more obvious what we need to look at that is suspicious or unusual. Oh, so it saves a lot of time. For example, when my card gets blocked every time I travel and I have to call in and go through this whole ring and roll. Uh, And you guys are a a startup. Uh, This is a great space uh, to jump into. Certainly there's, uh, you know, as you were describing, a lot of need. Um, How has it been to establish uh, yourselves as uh, you guys are ramping up here? I will tell you, it is a really exciting process. Uh, There's so many analogies that I use. I myself come from a relatively large institution type of background. Uh, We we all noted that we're all alums of a certain institution. And and so this is very new for me to be part of a small team. 
um, to try to do something like marketplace education, where we're really asking people to think differently about their business processes. You know, these aren't better mousetraps. This is taking it all the way to why the mice might want to find refuge in my house to begin with. Uh, and yeah. so trying to gain traction and help people understand that we're really coming up with something different. People always want to default to, oh, well, I've seen this before. And I don't know that they actually have when you really take it down to the nuts and bolts. Yeah. How do you convince them? Um, is it is it down um, uh, uh, beneath the layers that uh, you have to explain to them? Like you're, you're saying the nuts and bolts uh, yeah. to, to show them that what you're doing is, is different. I know it's always tough when you're a new company to, uh, to, to explain what what your value proposition, how you're different, uh, what, what what's your guys' strategy for that? Uh, once you really dig into the underlying philosophy and the way that we've built our models, people begin to see that that it is different. Partly because the models we're building are are built off of proprietary data that no one had yesterday. Uh, we've actually generated a system that's generating our own databases that then are used to layer on to create the kind of quantum change that we're envisioning. So the fact that when, once they see how the sausage is sort of made, then they understand, well, wait a minute, this is this is using something completely different in order to baseline the activity. And this lets you do uh, different things than other people could. Uh, one thing I, I, I've seen mentioned is about the uh, being able to verify like uh, industries that are very problematic for for most financial institutions, like the the cannabis industry. So you're exactly. you're able to to filter out the the good transactions or the legal transactions, and help enable uh, banks who are and any you know financial institution along the chain who are very skittish about uh, dealing with the cannabis industry, you know, for fear of, um, uh, uh, you know, the, all this mismatched uh, state and federal regulation, um, exactly. help them filter through all of this. But is that mostly uh, gearing up for uh, when it does become, and I'll say when, I'll, I'll uh -huh, go out on a limb uh -huh. and say when it's it probably does a when. become yeah. Yeah, it's a when. on the federal level, or is this something that uh, uh, financial institutions, they can use now? So uh, well, we, there's a lot in those questions. So first of all, let me say, uh, just in terms of what our business is doing, we have a couple of different sides of things. One is a way for a bank or a financial institution or a fintech just to reach out directly to a client and ask them a question, whether it's related to an unusual transaction or related to, let's say, a cannabis licensing question or a, an enhanced due diligence type of question. We provide the kind of frictionless interface for the banker or the compliance person to reach out directly to that end user client can send them a text or a, or a mobile push notification and get real-time information from the client. So we call it kind of like restoring that superpower where a bank can have immediate contact with the customer and say, hey, we got a question about this license. We have a question about this thing that you wrote. We need a better answer. So that's one thing that we do. And then that's what we use to sort of build those models I was talking about. That's how we get into this idea of, of cannabis businesses as uh, as a microcosm for what it looks like for banks to deal with high risk customers in general, so it doesn't have to just be cannabis. It could be something else that's like maybe has different legality in different states, and you can imagine things that are sort of legal, like 
gambling or firearms or some kind of an adult business of a variety. Uh, card rooms have different legalities in different states. So all these things just fall into a category of high-risk businesses. I know you folks are intimately familiar with different ways to deal with that. What we see with cannabis is a very interesting historical inflection point where we see something that used to be hardcore illegal and it's become more socially acceptable and now it's actually become legal in certain jurisdictions though not completely federally so we're at this point where something completely illegitimate is is bursting through as legitimate and there's a lot of challenges that come with that like any and, and steve is industry. very happy about that i, I just want to <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean sure. why not <laughs> if it's there uh, yeah so can, can, can I ask you, real? Is, is this the issue? Is this the, the reason why I'm unable to, for example, buy when I do occasionally indulge in an edible with, with my wife, when I cannot do that using my credit card in some cases or my or my debit card in others? But there, there seems to be a discrepancy in how payments are accepted across yeah, all exactly. these vendors. Is that an issue exactly. with the, the federal government um, or banks being unwilling or unable to basically wade into federal waters and have a, and taking a more state approach? Or what's sort Correct. of the, the, the framework why this is the case? Correct. Let's do an elevator pitch review of the laws. So uh, we have the, the scheduling system for narcotics and substances and drugs and things within the, the United States. Uh, the, the Federal Drug Administration helps oversee that, but it's also controlled by the uh, <laughs> I'm blanking on it on it. It's uh, the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, right? The DEA. And so they actually own the schedule. Marijuana is a schedule one substance, which means federally it's considered to have no uh, permissible use or no value to society or medicine of any kind. It's actually classified higher than things like cocaine, which is used as a, a local anesthetic and is scheduled two. So until marijuana is rescheduled at the federal level into maybe schedule two or someplace more appropriate, then it really can't become legal by anybody else's jurisdiction. That means that at the federal level, it's illegal, but states have clearly passed laws. I think there's something like 31 states now that have recreational legal use for marijuana on the books. And those are places like Colorado and Washington, where you can walk into a store with an ID as long as you're over 21 and you can indulge. So uh, because there's a federal banking charter over most banks, right? They have, you know, that's what NA means, National Association for a Large Bank. They have to follow federal law. They don't get to pick and choose and follow Colorado law or California law differently, um, meaning that they, you know, they'll engage in projects to get rid of all of these customers. And I think we're going to talk at some point about levels of customers, because let's remember um, how money laundering works is that it has to start with a crime. So you can't launder clean money by by other tokens. You know, dirty money is never going to become clean. So if marijuana is illegal, any dollar that comes from a marijuana growth or sale is then illegal no matter what it does. When it goes to pay a payment processor, when it goes to pay rent, when it goes to pay for testing of the substance or transportation, all of those things are considered tainted by that illegal dollar. Right now, the moment that that dollar is legal, it changes again. And now all of it's allowed. Um, and it may just be considered high risk because it's a narcotic or whatever the case may be. During the Obama administration at some point, and I just want to make a disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legal scholar, I'm someone who's been in anti-money laundering and financial crime compliance for a long time and dealt with some of this stuff personally. I've had to write and review policies on it, but I'm still not a lawyer. So uh, there, was a, there was an Obama administration memo by the Justice Department called the Cole Memo, which basically said... Uh, we're going to adopt this kind of laissez-faire approach and not 
not prosecute people who are following state law if you're going to then allow people to bank that cash. So if I'm a marijuana sales uh, dispensary, you know, selling it to retail customers, I can only get cash, right? Because I can't process a check. I, I have all this trouble getting banking. But now the Cole memo said, okay, banks, we won't prosecute if it's a state legal, legal business. That started some banks thinking, hey, I could make money off of these bank, off of these customers, right? They're, they're providing a business. I can help them manage that cash and actually make the industry safer. So forward from that time, there was a rescinding of that memo with no superseding guidance issued. And so banks have continued to have programs. And they basically said, if we can manage the risk, if we can come up with ways to verify that they're following state law, then we can help them manage this. So now there is some banking, whether it's just taking all your cash and putting it directly in the bank, or there's also some companies, I believe, that are even starting to do payment processing through kind of the ATM networks. Uh, I heard that from a friend. And uh, so <laughs> okay. there's all these there's all these things that are happening, but there's a lot of things that are not happening. So now we can talk about the Safe Banking Act, which is this act that's been batted around between uh, the House and, and things like that in the past and never brought up in the Senate. So most recently, uh, the U.S. Senate uh, voted it it passed committee. And I don't, again, I don't pretend to know exactly how all these things work, but there was a committee that needed to review it. They passed it, which means now it can actually go to the Senate floor to become ratified. What this law does on its face is says, okay, banks, we're going to officially not prosecute you for banking marijuana. We're not going to terminate your license. We're not going to terminate your insurance. We're not going to force you to unbank these customers. We're also not going to force you to bank these customers. And uh, and so now it, it makes it safe to bank these companies, which is why it has that name. So uh, we now have the Cole memo that became some limited banking. But with this new law, banks will be able to do a whole bunch of things that they actually can't do at all today. So currently they can't lend to these companies at all. So it's all cash based business and things like that. Um, they also can't provide the primary you know, payment processing services, Steve, that you were talking about, where you want to just be able to jump in there and do a, a point of sale transaction or an ACH transaction, just like we do for, you know, alcohol, even he, if it's he a really state-owned liquor yeah. store. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and why not if that's uh, if that's the way the law goes, right? It should just have the full um, opportunity to do business like any other company, right? And if it's a controversial industry, then it's regulated. So that also means that banks are not going to be completely absolved of some kind of compliance restriction. And by the way, I should say that, you know, there's a whole bunch of things in this law that really don't uh, really haven't been worked out the way that things yeah, work. It's is... still a little bit contradictory, right? Because it's still exactly. illegal at right. the federal level. But then there's this like we kind of won't enforce if you follow certain rules, I'm sure. So the law does establish that they are not going to consider marijuana dollars to have come from illicit activity. They're still saying, look, it's still an illegal product, but we're not going to prosecute you like this is money laundering. That's specific from what I've read. What I also see, though, is that they say, well, we still might have you write 
these suspicious activity reports, the SARS, that are the end result of all these anti-money laundering and financial crime compliance efforts, right? So every bank has this responsibility at the enterprise level to have a, a Bank Secrecy Act anti-money laundering department. And when they look at customers' activity, they they file something when, it, when they see it as suspicious. They file a report. So that report is currently being filed on every marijuana company that's being banked. And they have this, this whole guidance around it being a marijuana limited SAR, meaning nobody's doing anything wrong except it's marijuana money. And so they write these SARs every single you know 90 days on every single company. And that's a big compliance burden on the banks. It remains to be seen how much of that will be removed and how much of that will remain because the law specifically says, we want you to come up with new guidance around this. I also recall here, and maybe um, right after um, recreational use became legal here in California, that maybe the state would have also created some sort of banking entity to help all these companies essentially get financial services. Is that no longer an option? Is that or is that has that been stalled? Yeah, I've um, seen they they had to do that because um, they they had to hold on to so much cash because they couldn't bank it, and they right. were getting robbed, and this is becoming a big um, it's a huge yeah. risk criminal, you know, just violent criminal uh, risk. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how we see banks uh, working today. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if, uh, if I have a store and my entire operation runs in cash, that just puts a target on my back for criminals to just take it from me. And by the way, it's, it's marijuana, right? It's already an, an industry that's beset by, you know, the image of drug dealers in, in back alleys, uh, you know, double crossing each other. So we're trying to make it into a, a, commercial industry that is legitimate by doing these banking moves, right? That's what the whole industry is doing is trying to say, let's make it legitimate. Um, in the current environment, it's still pretty tenuous, right? We still haven't solved that problem. Uh, and, and so I think you asked about state banks. So there is a difference and I'm going to, you're going to hit the limit of my knowledge a little bit. There mm -hmm. is a difference between uh, any bank NA, which means national association, which means a, a full federal charter and then regional banks. And, and uh, there is a difference in regulation. So there's some banks that are regulated at the state level and then by a state or a, a federal agency, such as the FDIC that regulates the mid and smaller size institutions. Um, everybody's got some sort of a federal regulator, but if it's not a national association bank, uh, some of those decisions could be left up to the state. And I think that's how they've kind of uh, snuck in basically like the coal memo doctrine where you can bank it as long as you manage the risk and it's state level, right? We're not seeing the largest, the top five, top 10 banks doing that. We are seeing banks outside of that who are probably more heavily regulated by their states doing some of these banking services oklahoma new jersey lots of places yeah and they they charge a bit more because uh they don't have the competition and there's a lot yes. more uh compliance uh that they have to pay for so just because uh they would be able to bank it doesn't mean they have the infrastructure to handle it is that where you see one of the potential big growth avenues for for refined intelligence I do. I think uh, I think that our system can provide a, a real uh, pathway for communication, which is the biggest problem at, that I can see in some of these banking relationships, where uh, a lot of these folks who are running the businesses aren't used to running commercial enterprises. They thought they would get into it because it was something they were passionate about, you know, uh, and those they're not always, you know, hardcore business people. So they need help. 
Um, and, and the bankers get frustrated because they're not having clear communication or tracked communication with the compliance department. And so there's just breakdowns along the way. And our, assist, our system and systems like ours can definitely help streamline and smooth that um, and automate some of it. You know, if all you need is somebody to go in and go, oh, I haven't sent, you know, Joe at Cannabis LLC a reminder this week, we just do that automatically. I mean, there's so much time saved and just... Um, repetitively sending out like almost like a, a message just hey go back and fill out your paperwork <laughs> i was going to say though i kind of wanted to make a comment about this point where we're discussing how there are smaller banks now that are ahead in the game right those folks are going to remain ahead in the game for now but eventually depending on how the rules play out they could get priced out of the cannabis industry because it becomes so burdensome from a compliance perspective so i think one thing we'll look for very heavily is okay the law is nice but is it going to impose additional compliance burdens on the banks uh, additional compliance burdens on the companies themselves and you know it could have the effect of squeezing the market more than opening it up so we have to be careful usually there's a comment period on new regulations and it'd be nice to see what comes out of that um so, you know i i always like to ask um when somebody's do, dealing with uh, uh monitoring criminal activity what what uh, new ways criminals are coming up with to to steal i mean uh, yeah. I'm kind of darkly fascinated, I guess, uh, with the creativity that criminals have, no matter what the circumstances are, it's always a cat and mouse game. Uh, Absolutely. so what, what, what have you seen? I mean, certainly COVID brought out a whole, uh, way of, right? of new things and, uh, crypto Absolutely. for a while now and, and it's been evolving. Um, yeah. so are there any interesting, uh, anecdotes <laughs> or, or trends that, uh, that you see? Gosh, uh, you know, having to pick just one would be really tough. There is a, one thing I say is, you know, the old things are kind of are new again and the new things have become old. Um, crypto is is a very interesting way to move money that is that is new in the world, but also extremely old. It's very similar to old systems like the, the Hawala or Fei Chen informal value transfer systems, which are based more on trust. Uh, and peer-to-peer -peer systems, which is essentially what crypto is. So, um, but when people don't understand it, any new technology that they don't understand makes us very vulnerable. You know, people, my friends are always like, oh, so what crypto should I invest in? And I'm like, invest, you're not investing, don't invest. <laughs> yeah. That's not an investment. That's called currency speculation. Put now, it all in Solana. That, have That's fun. all I'm saying. Yeah, sure, man, yeah. Polkadot. Um, I have my share of a, a few coins here and there, uh, but I'm very cautious of doing that through legitimate regulated exchanges because there is just lots of opportunity for to, to poof into the ether sphere. Um, yeah, another thing that is so weird to me is that things like, like what's the most rudimentary financial device that you can think of? A paper check, I bet, is on your, on your list. And check fraud, if you believe it, is on the rise. So old things are new again. You know, uh, basically people can kind of like knock over a mail truck and pull bags of business checks out and they do things like you know just start forging business checks and it's really hard to to fight this because checks still take you know even in our modern world they take like 24 hours to clear so people can get away with money without um you know having a chance to check uh, 
they put new names on things like they call crypto scams pig butchering, where they sort of romantically involve you and get you to put all your investments in everything and then sort of take it all away from you and get you to put in more. But it's not much different than the old frauds of like, let me convince you that I'm a, a, a Russian girlfriend that's going to come and all I need is $10,000 for my first class ticket. So it's uh, it's interesting how uh, the the methods are very different and are constantly evolving. But when you kind of break it down, a lot of the underlying philosophies aren't that different. You know, if you think about, um, I don't know, I don't know why, but basketball comes to mind. You know, there's only so many ways you can work the ball around the court and get it in the hoop, right? It's, uh, if you have a new way to do it, that's amazing. Um, But a lot of times when you break it down, they're very similar to what's been going on for a long time. Uh, so you've got uh, you got your start uh, through on the military side. You were in the army, right? That's right. Yeah, pretty interesting. You kind of work your way up, and um, uh, it, it was a securing physical assets, right? Uh, well, so I had a uh, I had an interesting path. My my army career. I was a an army officer first. I went through the senior ROTC program at University of Oregon. And first I was just an infantry officer, which is, you know, your basic uh, rifleman soldiering, and I, which means my first jobs involved, you know, like leading a 30 person platoon, uh, the Bradley fighting vehicles you may have seen operating in Ukraine. I had a, a platoon of those and some great guys. Uh, and then I, I changed over on purpose. It was part of my planned uh, thing that they told me I was going to do. I became an intelligence officer. So they sent me to kind of a shake and bake course at uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And I went on to go and work for an intelligence unit. The basic idea of army intelligence is to kind of understand the enemy, the enemy's motivations, the understanding your opponent's thought process and typical behavior patterns, and then trying to predict and inform my command of what I think the bad guys might do. So interestingly, when I got into financial crime, I looked around and kind of made an analogy and said, well, shoot, we're just the what they call the analysis and control element of the bank. We're really just an Intel shop, a G2 shop to sit here and try to figure out what the bad guys are doing. And I've taken that analogy ever since. It's sort of a small personal mission to get other former uh, Intel folks and other former um, military folks into our profession because I think it fits really well. And um, it's a way to keep on what I think is a valuable mission while you know making some money and living a good life. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 check I all the I'm boxes. Actually, yeah, yeah that, that definitely checks all the boxes. Um, I, I've come across a bunch of. So I also, I also used to work in intelligence. Um, seems like, and I definitely saw a lot of friends. Who yeah, but that was from, Russian from intelligence, the, Steve. It was yeah. <laughs> for the U.S. It was, it was in the U.S. The room. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. But I have, I have, um, a bunch of friends who went from the place in Maryland to say places like you know, um, the the big four banks in the U.S. And yeah. I think that, as you say, there is an easy translation of sort of skill sets and also mindsets as well. They go from working in the IC to then working in private industry with, with that. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm assuming that it's a different kind of target. So can you maybe speak to the because you, you mentioned that you, you're looking at mostly um, the enemy and in, in what they're doing from a from a, an, an army perspective or from a military perspective perspective now but i'm wondering um how do the how do the opponents change and differ and sort of the the their evolution as well how does that differ in the private sector versus looking at it from a national defense perspective 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I I definitely just I'm a person who kind of works in concepts. So all I saw was that uh, I realized that there within a bank there's certain things that you have to watch out for. So instead of my enemy being a, a foreign soldier, my enemy became a money launderer, whatever skin that individual might wear. So, uh, so I basically said, okay, well, let me evaluate the different ways that money launderers might approach or get into the bank. And so I just started like, uh, I started approaching the, the typical compliance anti-money laundering questions of like, let me do a risk assessment. Let me see where our products are vulnerable to money laundering, um, typologies and things like that. And I applied my ideas of what I think might be inside the mind of a money launderer to help cross-reference those two things. So when I do kind of like a, you know, a risk assessment is a great place to start. Uh, where are the ways that our products are vulnerable to money laundering? Well, money laundering is, you know, heavy in cash or uh, any place where there's not a lot of information about the parties that are doing the transaction or, you know, all these typical things. So I guess I just sort of looked at it more from a military lens and began to, you know, in the military, you might look at a map and you might say, well, what's an avenue of approach where a person can walk and what's an avenue of approach where, where a tank can drive? And I said the same thing within a bank. What's an avenue of approach where a money launderer can, you know, anonymously deposit funds? Oh, how about a money order that they bought at a, a, a money services business corner store down the road? That's an avenue of approach for a money launderer to come into our bank and things like that. And then you know, with any risk management, you kind of have risks and then controls. So the controls involve uh, things like uh, a network of, of transaction monitoring systems and an observant network of, uh, of tellers and bankers, right, to be referring information to you. Well, in the military, that's similar to having kind of like a, a network of human intelligence sources or having a, a signals intelligence network where you can listen to conversations and things like that. So I just kind of took these different intelligence disciplines and, and I made analogies out of them into the banking world and kind of did, you know, like a a very informal version of intelligence prep of the battlefield for myself when looking at the financial institution. I'm not sure if I answered your question or just kind of went on to, to uh, analogy land, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a, that's a pretty interesting. You know, I, I just saw it on, on uh, refined intelligence. Uh, you guys were doing some war games uh, on AML. Uh, that right. sounds pretty, pretty interesting. I guess there was a, a conference in Vegas. Um, right. How, how, what was that like? Uh, yeah, so one of our largest industry conferences kind of in the world happens in Las Vegas there, uh, Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. We did a sponsored session there in which we uh, we gave the audience, we divided everyone up into teams. So, you know, these conferences, they're like panels and speakers and some are interesting and some are dry and some yeah, are Yeah, this sounds way more fun. Yeah, so we put everybody at eight top tables and asked them to consolidate in. So we had full tables and then we would give them a scenario. And in this case, you can do it with different things. We've done it before with fraud use cases. And this was money laundering use cases where give them a scenario like a transaction monitoring alert has been identified for a large wire transfer to a high risk country. And you give everybody a chance to talk about it and vote on whether they want to report it or get more information. 
And then you give them three different bullets of information uh, and let them vote after each one, you know, almost like a round of poker where they have to bet what they're going to do with it. And after each set of data, you know, uh, if you if you get it in an earlier round, then you get more points. So if you wait till the end and you get it right, you only get one point. But if you guess on point number one, you get five points for that. And then we ran through four scenarios and we had everyone. Sometimes we had people debate a little bit because a lot of this stuff, money laundering, much like intelligence work, can be very vague. It can be very like hazy based on patterns and things. Uh, and so we, uh, you know, let people debate that out a little bit and kind of made some good points, educational points around risk tolerance and investigative methodology, and then, uh, and then scored it up and declared a winner. It was a ton of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a great opportunity where you can discuss, uh, different aspects or why you did one thing versus another and hearing other people's opinions. Uh, it sounds exactly. like perfectly made for, for, uh, prompting that kind of discussion. Uh, so what kind of uh, companies are Refined Intelligence's uh, target? What, what's your target customer, like the size or kind of company? And right. what do you wish they already knew when you uh, when you talk to them? <laughs> You're like, I, I wish they already knew this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wish they already knew that there's a way that we can talk to their customers and get answers right away. A lot of banks, so our target market tends to be uh, kind of the mid-sized banks outside of the top, let's say six or eight in the US. Um, we're also looking at banks in Canada, the UK and Latin America. Uh, but I would say primarily, you know, the top 100 banks in the US is right where our sweet spot is. We have, uh, we have folks that we're already working with um, a, a bank specifically in New Jersey that is our customer and partner. And, uh, and I wish people knew that there was just this way to do this because I even myself have undersold it in the past and said, Hey, we have this really cool way to model data. Oh, and all the, also we can, we can let your AML folks ask a question and get a response in two minutes. And people are blown away by the fact that they can actually send a formatted survey to a customer, get a quick response and resolve those AML investigations much faster, almost like you could just have the customer in the room with you, but then you come back and you get structured data and it's useful in a whole bunch of ways. Yeah, it sounds like something like almost too obvious. Like, well, why don't you just ask the customer rather yeah. than trying to like um, uh, recreate or infer from all this complex data? You don't need AI and all that. Mm -hmm. You can just ask them. <laughs> like, well, they that, do. What they typically do now is they ask a banker to reach out and then the banker makes a phone call and then everybody plays the telephone game. So it's untracked and unmanaged. <laughs> Right, right. Not a very efficient uh, yeah. way. Like, like I was uh, saying in my example, I, I have to call in and get a hold of somebody. Not not, not the ideal. Oh, oh, interesting. It's never easy. It's never easy. Right. So what, what's the biggest surprise? Um, this is your first startup company uh, that, that you've worked at. What, what's been the biggest surprise to you? Um, I don't know that it's a surprise. I was personally really ready for this change and it is, it is exciting. Um, I'm still very much just enjoying it. Uh, it's a little bit like having been in the army and training to go on a real maneuver. And now I'm out in life and I'm on real maneuvers. This is everything I do matters. The words I speak, the, 
opinions, you know, coming on a podcast like this, if I say something really great, it could help. If I say something dumb, it might really hurt us. Prepare for a a ton of new clients. (laughs) (laughs) It's exciting and terrifying, John. Uh, But I guess I'm not surprised because it's, it's everything I wanted it to be. And I'm really happy just to be part of the um, part of a solution. I'm getting to implement things that I thought of back in 2008 when I first sat down on my investigator desk and thought, why are we doing it this way? So I'm excited about that and the prospects. That's a good sign that you're in the right place then, I guess. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, best of luck to you. Keep up the good work and uh, keep us safe from the bad guys. Well, thank you so much. I just appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, You've all been so friendly and welcoming, and uh, maybe we'll meet again soon. Yeah, hopefully um, not as uh, not in custody or anything. (laughs) Never. (laughs) All right. That's Rio Miner, the head of intelligence at Refine Intelligence. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.